0: Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fregel Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working, and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to welcome Martin Kirk to the podcast. Martin is co-founder of The Rules, a global collective of activists of all types dedicated to challenging the root causes of global poverty and inequality. He's also a consultant for the Novo Foundation, helping advise their work on supporting communities to transition to new economic models. Prior to The Rules, Martin was the head of campaigns at Oxfam UK and head of global advocacy for Save the Children. So thank you very much, Martin, for taking the time to join me today on the Sustainability Agenda podcast.
1: Uh, You're welcome, Fergal. Thank you for inviting me.
0: So um, you've done a number of different things over the last uh, few decades uh, in in the world of environment, in the world of uh, environmental change. And um, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you're doing at the moment? And specifically, I'd be interested in also getting a sense about what the rules is about.
1: Sure. Um, yes, I've been working on environmental issues of one sort or another for 20 years or so. Um, but my background didn't start, and I don't didn't come from the environmental movement. I came um, more from international development. Um, I worked for Save the Children. I worked for Arts Fan. And when I first started in those in that business, climate change was obviously an issue, but it wasn't front and center. And we're only talking, yeah, 15 years ago here, 15-20 years ago. Um, and, but it gradually became you know the more more and more dominant um so i worked for a i was a lobbyist with Save the Children. I started doing public campaigning work uh, looking particularly public campaigning work with oxfam um, and then I started to really look at. Uh, The narratives um, that we tell around these great big issues, because it seemed to me I got very frustrated by not being able to understand why, for example, if you look in the UK, where they were doing lots of polling on people's attitudes to poverty, um, the the line of support for action on global poverty always floated around the 25 percent mark support for that sort of action. And I couldn't get an answer to why 25 percent. Why not 15 percent? Why not 50 percent? What it is about? What is it about 25 percent? um and what 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 insights can we gather there so i started to look at psychology cognitive framing um started to talk to linguists started to bra- branch out in other words beyond the traditional policy and campaigning um, uh, areas and speak to people about these bigger psychological questions, which we term as basically, um, which are all captured in narrative. So, um, I started to look very much at, at narrative, and that's when I started to really the uh, uh, my view of the world started to change quite dramatically. Um, I had been very much a mainstream thinker in many respects when I was inside the development sector. And it was only when I started to really look at the psychology, really break down the stories we tell about climate change, about poverty, about inequality, that the rot at the heart of the logic made itself so apparent to me. Um, So just to give you an example of that, when we we talk about global poverty, um, if you take the language used by anybody from any of the big NGOs, pretty much the United Nations system, the World Bank, um, the IMF, um, big rich governments um they all basically tell the same core story about poverty which is um, that poverty is just something that's natural in the world that the way we solve it is largely through acts of charity from rich people giving a little bit of money to poor people um uh, and and that kind of just exposed to me just how what deep, deep assumptions that are buried in these stories we tell, that actually if you expose them, you put them on the surface, you look at them and you go, that's just not true. Um, so I started to really lose faith in the core stories that we were telling around these things. And that's when I started to move into um, working with the rules. Um, and So we set up the rules in 2012, explicitly to try and shift some of the deep logic in some of these stories that we tell around, particularly poverty, inequality and climate change, three things we call separate issues, but are actually deeply, deeply interlinked. Um, and all track back to the same root causes. Um, And so we've spent the last six or seven years trying to figure out ways to do campaigning that gets at those deep logics that don't just operate on the surface. Um, and shift some of the belief systems that we have around these issues, not not facts and figures, not the what we think about poverty, what we think about climate change, but the how. How do we conceive of this problem? Um, because that conception that we have is made up of all sorts of things, facts and figures, but also our own personal experience, our emotions. It's a very um, complicated set of things that create our opinions on these these issues, um, And some of those, the component pieces of those belief systems are, as I was saying earlier, just factually incorrect. So we've been trying to work on those because once, if you can work on the deep belief systems that people have, all the actions and all the policy level opinions they have um, start to shift. You know, those deep, the deep psychology, the deep belief is like the soil from which all our opinions and actions grow. So I would say like 90, 95% of all campaigning happens at that level of um, what um, what we think and do, not the deep level of our belief um, and our, and our worldviews. So we spent the last, uh, yeah, seven or eight years at the rules trying to figure that out, how to engage at that level um, of psychology with campaigning techn- technologies. Um, and now I'm just uh, shifting and i'm um going from the global right right down to the local, and I'm sure in our conversation we will explore why that is because um, that again has been a very fundamental shift in my in my thinking about what's ne- where we are and therefore what's needed
0: excellent that's uh, fascinating, and I certainly want to come back to this uh, deep theme of of the the, the stories and the underlying uh, logic and the underlying the way we we, we conceive of of these questions. Um but maybe can there is also, I guess, as you say, the the what, what's happening and um what is happening that is on your mind. Um, obviously the way we tell the stories is important and, and, and unpacking that and, and, and we can talk about that. But in terms of, you know, you mentioned inequality, poverty, climate change, um, numerous environmental boundaries. Um, what would you highlight as being your, your biggest concerns that's on your mind at the moment?
1: Well, there's the obvious answer to these questions, which we don't have to look far for. I mean, we just, you know, the headlines these days, you know, it's it's a relentless litany of of very, very concerning uh, facts and figures, whether it's late, you know, the ice melt in the Arctic or it's loss of flying insect uh, biomass in, in Europe, or it's the bleaching of the coral reefs, or it's the amount of plastics in the oceans, or, you know, any of these things. We just keep getting hit with these things day after day. Um, and so we can each get pulled into despair <laughs> at any one of these headlines. But the individual headlines don't, aren't the things that really um, keep me awake at night. What keeps me awake at night is when you stand back and you look at the operating system as a, almost like a sense making s- uh, machine and you assess its um, health on that grounds. Are we as a collective, as a human species, are we making sense of the world? Um, and I would say my perspective right now is that we are fundamentally mis- uh, not making sense of the world. Our sense-making cap- capabilities have, have failed us. Um, and this goes right into the depths of our uh, uh, our ways of handling knowledge as a society. Um, so if you just take, let's, let's go straight into something like into the climate system, for example, the, the, the way we handle knowledge around climate. So the IPCC in its desire to be acceptable to politicians in the world has a certain way of operating, which makes sense if you say we can only, we have to be exceedingly careful and only ever put out information and opinions that we are confident of, that we can back up um, to the satisfaction of essentially climate denying politicians. Uh, then the process that they've they've set up makes sense. But if you're asking the question, does this accurately represent the reality of the moment, then absolutely it just fails us. So just to give you an example. So the IPCC, um, the data the IPCC works with uh, is at least five years old. The processes by which they will allow material into the IPCC process guarantees that it has to be at least five years out of date because it has to be published, it has to be uh, peer-reviewed. Um, uh, and to get from data to peer-reviewed publication takes, on average, two years. So even if only we were working on, on that time scale. Everything we hear from the IPCC is at least two years old. Then it has to go through the the process of the IPCC, things getting approved by the IPCC. And the IPCC doesn't put out things that scientists want to put out. The final level of approval goes through diplomats and politicians. So you can see in the way they process information, it is inherently conservative. Mm. To, to by about, at least, well, I'd say sensible Um, rule of thumb is it's at least five years out of date. And that's just the root science of it. Um, And you look at the pace at which the climate system is changing right now, five years is an eon. Um, One of the things that you'll notice through all these these despairing headlines we get, there's an underlying theme that everything's happening faster than was expected or predicted. Um, So we're in a situation where things are happening far faster than were being predicted. We're already working on information that is at least five years old, and it's having to be approved by politicians before it even gets to the public. That is not a recipe for clear sight of the problems that we face. Um, And this is made all the more um, damning by the fact that the information that we were getting, even if it was being presented to us in its truest form, is phenomenally complex. It is exceedingly difficult to read, and it is exceedingly difficult to predict from the best we can do is look at trends and expectations of kind of uh, yeah uh, patterns movement. Nobody can predict with any certainty exactly what's going to happen next in a system of this complexity. So we're shooting ourselves in the foot even before we try to um, recognize the deep complexities that we're dealing with. Uh, So the systems, the the knowledge management systems that we're relying on to get us through this most uh, dangerous period um, are failing us uh, uh, profoundly. So anything we hear coming out of the IPCC, anything we hear um, coming out of the mainstream bodies has to be taken as exceedingly conservative. Um, so when you get these daily headlines telling us things are much worse than they thought, that's barely covering it. Um,
0: yes, yes, and, 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 and that is a um this this non-stop messaging is um uh, well it's I guess it's 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 often presented in a fragmented way and not joined up so you see these things happening and I know certainly in the United States but even on uh, mainstream media in the UK and so forth it's much less frequent that they will actually join it all up as a systemic issue, uh, at least at the level of climate change and global warming, uh, maybe a little bit more recently with the heat wave this summer um but um there has been an issue i mean the stories we we tell the stories we talk about that, and and the environmental movement has had some criticism about negative stories, relentless negative stories um many of which haven 't panned out <laughs> um and, the, and 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 I'm just wondering. Uh, can you talk? I mean, we jumped a little bit ahead of ourselves here, but I, I, w- w- when you mentioned that, I was interested to just see what what is your sense of the impact of these uh, ongoing uh, news bulletins, as it were, from the from the from the front line—not um, the IPCC, but the, the you know the, the reports that are coming out the whole time. Uh, I just the, the various uh, bits of information that we're getting in different ways, and it is it you know it it, it when you put it together, it is terrifying.
1: Yeah. I mean, let for, for me just check you on one point there. Um, actually, most of the major predictions and, and expectations and the, and the trends that have been mapped out have been pretty accurate. Yes. A side, it's yes. Right. So, so they, they have panned out. Now, of course, you can find this one – micro prediction that didn't turn out exactly the way it is but you look at any of the major trend predictions from the modeling they have largely been on track sorry yeah
0: i wasn't i wasn't referring specifically to the climate change but i mean i guess the limits to growth and some of the malthusian ideas are you know around that that they they have been used a bit as a beating stick and saying well the limits
1: to growth business as usual prediction scenario is pretty Mm -hmm. much spot on um, the Mathusian stuff that's a different thing i'll separate that out but limits to growth has been actually exceedingly um prescient
0: uh in its yes yes its, it, uh, yes uh, and i suppose that, that i get it you, you get a sense that people are one way or another a bit overwhelmed <laughs> with Absolutely. stories of doom and gloom and, and uh, yes and, <laughs> yes
1: okay so and and we've, I think we've misdiagnosed the problem here. I, that's absolutely true. And and a, and a few years ago, I was working quite a lot ago with a, a friend and colleague of mine called Tom Crompton, who's done a lot of work looking at that. Um, what happens when you trigger uh, fight or flight thinking um, in people, and 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 what happens when you get people to think about death, for example? Um, and you're absolutely right that there is a, the way that we have presented um, the scenarios. There is an easy criticism that it's been too doom and gloom and humans don't particularly uh, respond well to doom and gloom. However, I think the problem there is not the doom and gloom. It's what you were pointing to earlier there. It's the, our ability to see the whole. Um, and that comes back down to narratives and actually um, uh, our root Almost like the, the, the system condition that is, this is is – you'll hear the irony here. The system condition we're dealing with that is most problematic is that humans have not been trained how to think systemically. We do not see the connections between things. We see things individually. This is how we've been trained. This is the, um, the enlightenment way of thinking. This is uh, – the, 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 basically based on the metaphor that the world is a machine that can be taken apart into, into its individual components and then built back up again. Um, and that we know that's, that's not true. The, the, the world is a living system um, where everything is in deeply, deeply interconnected. Um, and so our modes of thought mitigate against us being able to see things clearly. Now, there's a contrast to that sort of thing. So if you take, for example, I'm not sure if you saw a couple of years ago in Paris, um, I don't know if anybody was paying attention, they would have seen some, um, some uh, First Nations <clears throat> protesters or protectors from, from, I think it was from they were North American, mostly, but they, they were um, starting to tell a very different type of story. So if people remember, they, they were banners saying things like, we are not protecting nature. We are nature fighting back. Um, or the idea from Standing Rock that we are not protesters, we are protectors. These little shifts in, in, in the language are actually signaling something very, very deep. They are coming from a very, a very, very different type of worldview that does see things in an integrated way. So let me give you an example of the sort of language they use. So I live in Colorado and not too long ago, last year, um, down in the southwest of Colorado, there was some um, protest against some coal. Um, coal mining Uh, and these were indigenous protests and they referred to coal as the liver of the earth coal is the liver of the earth immediately you think that you're into a systemic form of thinking because if you describe something as the liver of the earth that you're using a bodily metaphor you're saying the coal is like the liver of a body now, instinctively, without moment's thought, we all know what happens if you take the liver out of a body,
0: yes. the body's eyes,
1: because everything is connected. So there's a – you can just see in that one use of a metaphor, it's like a doorway into a whole other way of thinking about these things. So – and and it gets you – there's a whole language out there that does this inherently without – without having to kind of take people through each step. If we dig up the coal, the coal produces carbon dioxide, the carbon dioxide warms the atmosphere. Da, 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 da. Now you're into having to logically explain one fact after another, um, which is a super inefficient way of communicating. Um, but if they, if we could harness this more systemic language, you can start to understand, You can, or you can see how we could get to a more accurate understanding of the way things work. Um, I mean, at this point in the game, It's uh, of course you want to try that, but you know we're we're exceedingly short of time, and these things do take time. So I'm not saying that that, that's a solution to our (laughs) crises by any measure. But if you're trying to answer the question, how have we ended up in this situation where we are so disconnected from reality, and attempts to talk about it just get this pushback of stop being doom and gloomy? um, It it's actually I think our answers and our understanding of how we got here lies in this sort of question rather than uh, just saying, well, you can't be doom and gloomy. You have to provide hope. No, you have to represent the world in an accurate, true way first.
0: Yes, um, and yes, yes, right. yes. And, and, and that's um, it's very interesting because you, when you, you start to look at systemic dimensions, I mean, where's, where does any system begin and end? But you can't really get away from the global economic system and, you know, uh, carbon, carbon uh, emissions and the, I guess, what they call the neoliberal turn or the last 30 years of economics and the way the the global economy has uh, unfolded. And again, underlying that, there is this question of stories and this story has been uh, told very effectively. And it it didn't emerge seemingly uh, just like that, but there was a, a very clear effort by uh, particular thinkers, by particular think tanks, to construct a set of ideas, and they uh, have proven very seductive. And it seems um, that uh, today, that whatever we call the the, the version of the neoliberal story does seem to be up for grabs. There does seem to be, uh, it, it, it seems to be increasingly threadbare, and there does seem to be possibly an opportunity for new stories to emerge.
1: Definitely, and actually, for the first time in the last twelve months, I've had a sense that um, it's emerging now, um, and I can see the outlines of it in a way that I couldn't do even ten, well, two, three, five, ten years ago certainly. And I'm talking about the work of people that you've, I've, you know, you've interviewed here before, like like Kate Rayworth, um, uh, like Project Drawdown people. Um, you've got people like Jason Hickel and different economists telling a different story of how, and as apologies how we got here. Um, so I'm really sensing that a new economic logic and contained in a new economic narrative is emergent. Whether it can emerge in time to to effectively bring kind of a fundamentally change the what we're looking at, I don't know. Um, uh, but, yes, in that sense, things are looking more hopeful than they have done, certainly for a long time.
0: And I'm wondering uh, if you can talk a little bit about, I mean, uh, there, there seems to be some momentum, at least, um, and corporations have been a dominant part of the our world for well over a century, and um, you know have have obviously uh, been very effective in certain respects in wealth creation and building you know large uh, organizations that work uh, albeit around a, a pretty narrow uh, set of objectives a single objective um, there does seem to be some momentum with the b Corps now and around that and um, and also in terms of finance um, uh, and i 'm just wondering. How much of this is surfaced, Do you think is this on your radar? Is this something that you you, you look at and you, one cannot get away from the, the the weight of money and finance and the you know the deregulated finance we've seen in the last decades and um, you know I just spoke to Carlota Perez recently and she has quite strong views on the role of the state and regulation but particularly with respect to footloose capital. In, uh, in, 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 in creating change and, and, and going forward. I'm just wondering to what extent those, those, those different areas are, are, are on your radar.
1: Oh, they're massively on my radar. And actually they, they, um, they are the reason really what I'm, I'm doing making another very profound shift in my approach to this and going very local. Um, because if you look, let's take the airline industry for example. Yeah. The airline industry—you have within it—it it is a big contradictory mass of things. You have within it people like Richard Branson who are trying to push the envelope on um, airline fuels, for example, um, uh, and that gets headlines and it sounds great. And yes, let's all reduce the the impact of uh, airline fuels. Um, however. When you look at the entirety of the, the, the intentions being held within the airline industry, they want to double the number of flights by 2034. You ask, the airline industry has never been more profitable. Um, their growth projections are immense. You look at China is building 200 new airports right now. A 10% reduction in fuel efficiency is nothing next to that. So if you're looking at that aggregate level, you have to accept that this machine is not stopping this machine that requires endless growth, that requires endless productivity increases. The energy contained within this machine is unstoppable uh, at a certain level right now. Um, and so the only thing. And which isn't to say that, we, that all the arguments shouldn't be made at that conceptual level about how the whole system needs to change, but to my mind, right now, the most important thing that can happen is to build the is to write the DNA of the new model at a micro level so that it can infuse and grow within the body almost of the old system. So, like a caterpillar, and this is a much overused metaphor, but it's uh, but it is actually very true. It's actually very handy actually for this. You know, when a butterfly. Uh, when a caterpillar goes into its chrysalis, it breaks down completely, or it goes into goo and then it is rebuilt. Now, um, uh, what we're actually doing—the liminal cells that, that are created in the chrysalis that create the body of the of the of the but- the emergent butterfly—that's what we need to build. We need to build uh, within the casing of the old, the DNA of the new. Um, And doing so in full knowledge, this is a race against time. There's no guarantee this is going to work. But we damn well know that communities from north to south in the coming years are going to need to be an awful lot more resilient to shock, whether that's financial shock, ecological shock, health shocks. You know, these shocks are just we're just at the beginning of this period of disruption. So building resilience into communities is an absolutely essential function as you do that you can build in new economic logics. Um, It's a difficult choice to make to start to focus down on that because it feels its own type of incommensurate. Like how I can work on this one town or this one village or this one city, um, but I'm still looking out and I'm looking out to the whole world system. It's deeply frustrating. But it's only when you, that's why you have to have that deep realization of the fact that the system at a global level has a momentum to it that is I, we are woefully um, dismissive of. I mean, if you think about the IPCC's report two months ago, where it said we have 12 years to dramatically reduce carbon emissions. And that was presented as if that was a credible choice, <laughs> as if seriously there is a set of decisions that could be made this year, next year. That could achieve that. It's physically impossible to achieve what the IPCC is saying needs to be achieved in the time in the time required, and yet we treat it as if it's a legitimate goal. Um, so we have to get over this. We have to get over this idea that 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 some of these simple solutions, if we just if the right people make just the right decisions in just the right ways, we can avoid the worst of what's going to come. Um, And I give all credit to the IPCC. That was very brave of them to make those, to write that report and make those statements um, because it required them to be politically brave because they were going to get an awful lot of flack for it. Um, uh, Although, interestingly, we're seeing that people didn't respond with quite, there was, with quite the level of dismissiveness that they have in the past. There wasn't that outrage that you're being, dis, you're being um, doomsday about everything that there would have been even five years ago. So that does signal to us that the environment is hearing, is starting to acknowledge the scale of the threat. Um, the problem is, is even that acknowledgement is 20 years too late. Um, uh, so at some level, there just has to be a recognition you can, we can have all the nice quaint debates about whether it's humans respond well or or badly to difficult information, but there is a basic truth here that there is a level of information that just has to be grappled with. Um, Now it doesn't have to be grappled with by everybody, everybody that you meet in the, in in your day, but it does have to be grappled with um, uh, by people who are fundamentally trying to really engage this um, and not sugarcoat it. Uh, And so, Um, uh, When you do that, you're left in a situation of what is the best route of harm minimization, making sure that the least amount of suffering happens to the least number of people over the course of the next 50 or so years. You are left with the inescapable conclusion that we have to start in every community. Every community has work to do um, to make itself more resilient. And the connection between those and hope and work towards the idea that, in connecting enough of those communities and enough of that work together, the new logic will emerge in a way that gives us a better rather than the worst chance of weathering the next period.
0: Wow. That's found. That's deep. And um, it, I think as was uh, Hugo Bardi who said that collapse is a feature, not a bug. Yes. And I think that's quite a, a interesting way of looking at things and um but as you say uh not uh, uncontroversial and not without its challenges and not without um a lot of um heart and mind to to you know, to to really get to grips with 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 this and 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 making decisions of that nature. I'm wondering um this is the sustainability agenda we're talking about stories way we frame questions and I'm just wondering what does sustainability mean? Is it a useful way of framing uh, what we what we need to do at the moment? You talk about regeneration. Um, there's a lot of or resilience. Um. People talking about uh, regeneration. Uh, I know the whole question of sustainable development has come under question as <laughs> an oxymoron. And I, I'm just wondering um, to what extent the you, you see the, the, the resilience as being a really uh, important way of framing uh, ways of dealing with with the, with the problems we have at the moment, and and, and also in light of whether uh, whether there are other other ideas.
1: Yes, I, I mean, I you mentioned the two that I think are the most. say honest, really, which is resilience and regeneration. Um, And regeneration is such a powerful concept. um, And it is so much better than Mm. sustainability. Um, At the the most basic level, if you strip away all the sound and fury, this system is not sustainable, by its nature. Um, And so the idea that we can make this way of being sustainable is itself um, a lie. It's, it's, it's not true. It's just factually incorrect. We cannot. And the reason I say that, let me be clear about why I say that, because this system is designed to express the logic of growth. Growth isn't a bit on the side. Growth is the prime directive of this system. And by growth, we mean a very particular type of growth. We mean growth in the supply of capital. This entire global system follows one overriding rule, which is make more capital. And it makes capital by turning other things into it. Sometimes capital, you know, uh, capital, as a, as a friend of mine uh, says, you know, the, the miracle of compound interest is really just capital making love to capital. Um, so that it, it generates itself. But the other two ways it does it, it turns natural resources and human resources into capital. And that's the purpose of this system. It really, you know, the clue really is in the name. It is capitalism. It's about capital, increasing the supply of capital. Um, now, that is, on a, planet, on a finite planet, when you have a finite amount of materials um, and you want to grow them infinitely, there's obviously just a deep, a deep lie, a deep disconnect there. Um, uh, so that very logic is what has to... Uh, Is what has to change. But unfortunately, that logic is written into the DNA of most organisations, most businesses, most people. Most people like. Don't we all expect to grow our salary as we go through our careers? Don't we all expect to have get bigger houses? Don't we all expect that growth mentality in our own lives? Um, And so, this is the level at which our problems lie. Um, And there is precious little. imagination around to articulate how things needn't be this way, how growth isn't a law of nature, how capital growth of this sort isn't a law of nature. Growth, of course, is, is, is life happening. But we, we know in our own bodies we can separate good growth from bad growth. I only have to put the word A in front of it and suddenly I know exactly what's good growth and what is A growth. A growth is bad. We have no problem understanding that. Um, and yet, we do not apply that same logic to to the economy.
0: Um. we 've talked about this this question of growth, and what we have certainly seen is the growth of these giant organizations um i mean uh technology companies global corporations i mean the multinationals have been around for a while but the 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 way in which they straddle the planet and the power that they have uh cross borders uh the sheer economic weight they have and I guess in various countries too, the you know, particularly in the United States, the the, the way in which the, the, the capital has actually hollowed out many aspects of of our key key functioning elements of the democratic process. So th- there is this sense of uh, massive massivity, um, and uh, I'm just wondering, uh, we're talking about the, the the pace of change, uh, the need to change, the need to change fast. On the one hand, some people will say, "Well, these big organisations—they've clearly got to be part of the solution." And you know, when they move, things happen. So, Walmart initiates a, a you know, a circular economy initiative, or Dell, or something like that. These are great things, and and, and many small organisations around the world will feed into that. And yet, at the same time, these are huge. These are organisations which you know uh, are beyond our our our. our
1: That's absolutely, that goes to the crux of so many issues. And this is something that we don't talk about enough, I don't think, this question of scale. Now, what we're really talking about here is feedback loops, um, because feedback loops keep um, entities together. So um, uh, for, for I don't know if people remember this, but way back when the uh, first Scottish referendum uh, was being done, um, there was some really interesting work done. Uh, by the I think it was the SMP did it at the time, but they used some research on the optimal size of government to population it manages or governs. Um, and what they were looking for was at what level of scale does the feedback loop start to break down between population and government um, and this the indication that they ca- they came to was it 's around three to five million. Is the optimal size where the population are still actually sovereign to the government? That the feedback loops, the government has to stay res- to a, a responsive to a, to a high degree um, to uh, to the population. Um, now, if you think about it, even the UK is what 65 million, the US is 360 million, China is 1.2 billion. Um, we are, and then and then you layer on top all the corporations. Um, what you're looking at is entities that really have very, very little connection um, to the, effect that they, the effects they generate on the ground. So if you think of like a CEO in a big corporation, they, there is no credible way they can understand the impact of their decisions on the people that are affected by them. They are just too big. The, if you look at Unilever supply chains, for example, and how many thousands of people are influenced along the way in a Unilever supply chain. Um, And then you think of the decisions that are made in head office and how they ripple on down on through. And then you attach the environmental impact to it. By the time all the information feeds its way back into the head office at Unilever, it is so conceptual. It is so um, divorced from lived experience that essentially it is all done in theory. They never have to actually face the consequences of their, of, of their decisions. It all comes back as conceptual information. They don't have to stare the people they're affecting in the face. They don't have to stand in the dry riverbed, which gives you that whole bodily experience uh, of reality. And this super conceptualization of life is one of the things that leads us to, into, into these, these, these dead ends that we found ourselves. Um, because the, it, it, it becomes almost all conceptual. Um, and actually, we are no longer actually connected to the world around us in any meaningful sense. Uh, so this is what scale does to us. When we operate at too high a scale, we operate at too high a conceptual level. So in one respect, you can think of the challenge of the next period is to reconnect with these feedback loops. And again, that has to happen from the locality up, from the bottom up. You can't impose a feedback loop in that sense from the top down. Um, it ha- feedback loops are a, th- are a question of yeah, uh, uh, are, are a question of scale. Um, so building those feedback loops back in so that communities are connected to the businesses that serve them um, is a way of rewriting the code of the system. I was reading a fantastic uh, book this week called by a woman called Marjorie Kelly, um, and there was this one line in that that just really kind of crystallised um, a, a lot of this in a, in a little insight, um, which might, might be helpful. Um She wrote that ownership, and bear with me here, ownership is the original system condition. So ownership is the thing that generates who owns what sits at the very, very heart of the system. And right now, we have ownership in a very, very concentrated form. So this is what we mean when inequality is basically a a representation of ownership. So right now, fewer and fewer people own own more and more of things, which means their influence is greater and greater and greater. That's another way of pointing towards bad feedback loops, inappropriate feedback loops. Um, uh, So this question of scale is something we have to get to. And unfortunately, the only way we can get to that is is like I was saying earlier, is to build in different feedback loops and different levels of scale from the ground up. And that's a time consuming thing to do. The good is that there is an awful lot of this happening already far more than the mainstream media would ever give you um uh the 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 idea so if you just take for example there are so many different good initiatives going let's just take one called the uh, uh um fab cities um initiative which is something that came out of MIT um uh, and it's basically the idea is taking fabrication, uh, consumption and production and relocalizing it. It's, ta- it's using digital fabrication, like 3D printers and that sort of thing. But also it's not just you, you can get caught with the shiny 3D printing, but it's also basic technologies like saw cutters and, and metal she- and, and um, uh, sheet metal machines. Um, the sort of, and they've they've come up with five machines that you need to basically maintain an industrial way of life. But the way they operate is not big, big global supply chains with 3D printing and and local production capacities. We can have all the production local that uses local feedstock materials um, with designs that can happen globally. With digital communication structure means I can share my design with somebody in Barcelona, the drop of a hat, and they can make exactly the same thing that I designed in my house in Colorado. They can make it in Barcelona with their 3D printer. I don't need to make, I don't need to buy the materials, put them together, ship them over there. They can get materials from their locality. So that sort of initiative is happening. And it's happening in big cities and small cities. Um, it's a little hive of activity that barely gets any mention in the mainstream press. You've got things like the New System Project here in the, the States, and they're working with people like Preston in the UK and the Mondragon Um, in Mondragon, in Spain, which is a hub of cooperative worker-owned cooperatives, um, you scratch beneath the surface, there's an enormous amount of this sort of activity going on. The question is, can it happen in time? Um, And is it actually all coherent with itself? And Right now, I don't think it is. I think you've got things like the fab cities who are solving for some of the issue, some of the big um, supply chain issues, but actually not solving for the DNA of growth whereas you have something like the transition towns who are getting to solving for the DNA of growth but aren't capturing the potential of The digital communication infrastructure necessarily. So, but you're seeing all these disparate little things popping up, and you can see if you stand back and you look at all of them, you can see the emergent thing, and it is going to coalesce. And if there's time and the right sort of focus and support and incentive, something else is here. It's coming.
0: That's Um, very optimistic. That's an optimistic note (laughs) from you, from from you, Martin, in in our conversation. Can I just introduce the question of power? The question of vested interests, yes. the question of status quo, and related issues of how that these elements can come together and uh, stop the the or 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 you know they stand in the path. To what degree do they stand in the path of this new future?
1: They absolutely do, and you're absolutely right. And power is the fundamental question, and I think that actually is is dealt with also in that statement I just said about ownership. Um, Ownership is the original system condition, more ownership is more power. So distribute ownership, you distribute power. Is a very, very simple way of describing it. So, what we're talking about here is different ownership structures. So, I just mentioned um, Mondragon in Spain. Last week, I visited Cleveland in Ohio here, where I was looking at the ever, this evergreen co op initiative that they've got and very innovative. And they've had to struggle with the IRS to allow them to do that, this, but they've done very interesting. And this is just one example, for example. So, they've got a, a series of worker co ops where the workers own the business, and it's an industrial laundry, and a hydroponic greenhouse, and an energy renewable energy company. And over the top of it, providing governance for it, is a five or 3 or not for profit, uh, mission driven entity. Um, so that provides its 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 governance guardrails. Um, so, for example, if one of the if the laundry, for example, wanted to leave Cleveland and grow into a big multinational laundry. It would have to get the permission of the the not-for-profit governance structure which wouldn't allow it because the governance is defined as providing benefit and ecological sustainability to the community so that provides you with a model that you can see you can have good business you can have successful businesses you can have workers distributing the profits which means which is a distributed power model essentially um, which can generate a new different type of politics in a locality. And now you can scale it up and it can become an emergent phenomena if it happens in enough places and they're connected through. Um, so, it, but it, this is how you work with power by working with ownership.
0: That's very interesting. And, and, and and you, as you mentioned, we talked about capitalism and, and it's uh, unchanging, it's relentless ability to keep reforming in one way or another and keep going. Um, and, you know, there has been significant changes in the structures of corporations, maybe not in important ways with respect to, you know, uh, the, the profits and, and shareholders and concentration of power and so forth. But they are in, in some ways they've been very flexible uh, in, in, in creating an, you know, this kind of globalized world. What about government? And we talked a little bit about, they talk about power. We see this. Farago in the in the what we see it in the United States what we see it here in the uk uh with with brexit and it's just so distressing and it's clear that the government is not working you talked about the kind of scale of 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 governance that works uh best how do you see that unfolding and that changing how does government become more fit for purpose as it were
1: you know this is this is where I get I don't know where I get a little defeatist um and actually, I was reminded, uh, people have been watching this um, young Greta Thornburg recently from Sweden. Gosh, she's been coming out with some of the best lines. In COP last week, she said, that wonderful line, she said, we're not here begging you for change. We're here to tell you change is coming. And that's kind of where I'm at now with the governments. <clears throat> I, Which is not to say that all every possible effort shouldn 't be made you know we really are in all of above, all of the above strategy required right now, we need to keep the lobbying pressure up. we need to do everything to move them in direction, but we should not be thinking they are where they can save us. We should not be outsourcing responsibility to governments at this point. they are largely bad actors on the stage um, and we have to try to keep making them better actors, but not relying on them as a, as, as as the as the solution um As, uh, as again, as Greta said last week, you know, they they haven't even been able to speak the truth um, uh, to us about the the situation. Even that burden, I think was a quote, even that burden you leave to your children. Um, Oof, that
0: hits. Yes, Um, yes, yes. uh, And I think it's absolutely true. Yes. Now that was a, a a low note, as it were. Um, uh, you say that it run out a little bit of optimism on that front. What what does I mean? We touched on some of these points, and what what where where are you optimistic? I mean, and tying that into what's next for you. You you, you mentioned uh, moving on into a more local kind of uh, environmental initiative or or a local initiative generally. What what are you up to, Martin?
1: I'm uh, I'm going to be moving work uh, shortly from working with the rules, which was exclusively looking at that global narrative space. Um, and I'm going to be taking up a, a position uh, helping the Novo Foundation um, work with a particular city in upstate New York to try and uh, make it into a kind of a model of, of the new system um, at work. So we're working on the electricity grids. We're developing a, um, a Uh, an organic farm. Um, We're looking at cooperative structures, supporting cooperative structures to emerge as a much stronger base to the local economy in the city, Um, looking at supporting local currencies. Um, So we're taking a lot and we're looking around all the ideas, like the fab cities I was looking at, I was speaking about earlier and the next system project and all these other initiatives that are around there. We're, We're trying to take the best of all the things we can see in each of those and make them relevant, uh, for this particular city of Kingston, upstate New York. Um, so that's going to be my work for the next, well, probably a fairly long term. Um, but it's to actually get into literally building, building, writing the new code into the system um, and building the new system um, in one place.
0: That's a great that's vision, great Martin. Vision. And I wish you the very best of success with it and thank you so much for sharing your research your ideas and your inspiration with the sustainability agenda today
1: thank you so much for it's been fun
0: thank you for listening to the sustainability agenda podcast i hope you found it interesting please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on itunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes